Today's scripture comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same food of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. And um, there they go. And let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, what an amazing hymn that we can say. Though sorrows like sea billows roll, washing over us, it's not a denial that life is difficult and full of trial, but Lord, it in the midst of it, proclaims, it is well with my soul. Lord, that, that's a hope rooted in something that's unseen but sure. And so, Lord, I pray that you would increase in us through Peter's epistle and through the preaching and teaching of your word, through our songs, through our life together. Lord, would you increase our hope that we might be able to say, it is well with my soul. Um, and Father, in, in, in light of that, um, we want to pray for Uvalde, Texas, and the massacre, massacre that happened. Um, Lord, we pray for the families who have lost um, children. I, I can imagine how terrible that would feel to watch it, to know that your child will not be coming home from school because of a evil person with a gun. Lord, we pray for those families. Would you find comfort for them? Would you lead them to a church that will remind them of the hope that they can have in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would comfort their, their sorrows, that you would wipe away every tear. And Lord, we look for that day when righteousness will fill the earth. And until then, Lord, we, we long for it and seek it. Father, I pray for the uh, police officers who did respond, those who waited. Um, I can't imagine why they would have waited, what was going on, but Lord, would you right this situation and, and father honestly the, the the number of shootings is just increasing I, I remember when i was a kid there was maybe one and now they're happening on a regular basis and father i think that's because our culture is moving away from um, an ethos of life the, the glorification of life and is embracing death and lord we know that's demonic that's not um, something that that we should be doing that's that's influenced by evil forces flaring up in human, wicked human hearts what they already want to do. And so, Lord, would you send your spirit and restrain this evil in this land? Lord, would you, would you restrain what human beings desire to do? Um, 
gun laws aren't going to do it. They're not going to go far enough. They can't change a human heart. Uh, wicked people will find other ways. Uh, but Lord, we, we count on you and we look to you. And so, Lord, I pray in the light of all of this that the gospel may somehow shine. You have purpose in this, I'm sure. Have mercy. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, as we turn to hear what Peter has to say to us, we pray that you would fill us with a, a rock-solid hope. Um, in, in the midst of this wicked and fallen generation, in this, this world that's twisted and bent, Lord, would you help us to find hope and have the purpose in that, not just to be our comfort, but Lord, that we might lead others to that same hope. We pray that you bless the preaching and the hearing of your word now. In Christ's name, amen. So one of my favorite movies is the movie from 1999, Unbreakable, by M. Night Shyamalan. Um, it's not widely loved. Some people think it goes too slow. And the reason for that is because Shyamalan said right off the bat, this is the first act of a superhero origin story. So typically a, a three-act play would go, the superhero discovers there's something about him. He begins to believe that. The second act is he's beginning to explore his powers and his abilities and, and find out what they're all about. And the third act is the big showdown with the bad guy. That's a typical ho uh, hero, uh, superhero origin story. You see it in um, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, uh, Iron Man, all of these other ones. That's, that's kind of what's going on. Um, but Shyamalan said he wanted to do just the first act. And so the story is about a man named David Dunn. And he's played by uh, Bruce Willis. And he is a not happy guy. He is just dissatisfied with life. And he can't put his finger on it. Now, he's got a wife and a son, and he loves them, but he's distanced from them. And, and he can't really connect, and he can't explain why. I mean, he loves them so much that when he was in college, he was a football star because he's a superhero, right? So he could play. Can you imagine him playing football? Captain America on a football team? That would be awesome. But his wife was going into physical therapy, and she really didn't like sports because of what it does to the human body. And so one night they get in an accident, and he fakes an injury so he can quit football and marry this woman. So he walked away from this wonderful thing. So that's how much he loves her, and he cares for her. But he just can't connect. And so one night in the movie, they go out on a quote-unquote first date. They're trying to repair their relationship. And so uh, his wife, Audrey, says, uh, that one of the games they play is ask any question. Any question is fair game, and you have to answer it. So Audrey says, do you knowingly keep me and Joseph at a distance? And David says, yes. She says, why? David says, I don't know. I just don't feel right, Audrey. Something's just not right. And so you get this pain this man has. He, he loves his family. He can't connect, and he can't figure out why. Well, eventually in the movie, he meets somebody who thinks he has an answer, a man named Elijah, David and Elijah, right? the king and the prophet. Um, I don't think that was accidental. But he meets this man, Elijah, and Elijah thinks he's got it figured out. And so when he talks with David and he's beginning to explain it to him, he, he says, um, he asks David, or when he first starts explaining it to David, David doesn't believe it because basically the story is you're a superhero. And, and David's like, you're nuts. And so when he's kind of rejecting him, he says, this morning was the first morning I could remember that I didn't open my eyes and feel sadness. I thought the person who wrote that note had an answer for me. And this is where he kind of dismisses Elijah. Well, Elijah goes through his own thing, but eventually Elijah figures out what's going on, and he comes to him again and he says, 
Were you really injured in that car accident in college? Because I believe you faked it. I believe you took the opportunity to end your football career, no questions asked. And I think you did it, of all things, for a woman. I guess that makes sense. Football's what, 10 years? But love, hmm, now that's forever. And that little bit of sadness in the morning you spoke of, I think I know what that is. Perhaps you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And then the rest of the movie is David exploring his ability and, and growing in it and beginning to trust that. And you watch his relationship with his wife go from the strange, they're in two different bedrooms in the house, to one morning they're, they're in the kitchen cooking breakfast and talking and laughing. And one of the most beautiful ones is there's this Audrey's asleep and suddenly she's floating. And you're like, what? And then when the camera pulls back, he's carrying her up to his bedroom. They're going to share a bedroom again. But it's, it's like magic where he's floating up there with her. So he, he's finding who he's supposed to be, and it's returning the joy to his life. And so what Peter's going to do for us this morning is he's going to show us that little bit of sadness in your life. Where does it come from? Why is it there? And then he's going to show us how to get rid of it, how to address that. So what he's going to tell us is what to do what not to do, and the reason to live that way. And he's going to help us find our identity in Christ, who we are supposed to be. And when we find that, when we find what we're supposed to be doing, that's how we have joy in the dispersion, is by being who God has intended us to be. So let's, let's take a look. It starts with, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with this way of thinking. So this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to arm yourself with this way of thinking. Well, what thinking is he talking about here? What's, what's he asking us to think about? How do we arm ourselves? Well, in the immediate context, it is that Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, remember, this is all under that banner of suffering. And, and for us, it is suffering unjustly. We've done what's right, and we still suffer. And Christ was held up as the pinnacle of that. The most innocent, the most perfect man ever suffered unjustly. So he says, remember that. Remember Jesus suffered in the flesh. And, and this is how you can arm yourself to, to live the life you're supposed to in the dispersion. But I got to tell you, Jesus' suffering in the flesh is not enough. Paul tells us if Christ died and didn't rise again, then we are amongst all people to be pitied. So the, the idea that Jesus suffered in the flesh, while super important, is not the whole thing. And the reason I say that is because Peter doesn't mean it that way. We have something very artificial here called the chapter break, which Peter didn't use. And so we tend to separate chapter 3 from chapter 4. This is a new thought, a new thing. Back up one verse in your Bible. What does it say? Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh. So the story is, Jesus suffered in the flesh, and what he means by that is he died. He was crucified, and he actually died. He was in the ground for three days, but then he rose, and he defeated death. He defeated sin. He defeated the grave for us, but that's not the end of it. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God with angels, powers, and authorities having been subjected to him. That's what we're supposed to fix our mind on. He says, arm your mind with this. Fix this in your brain. This is the gospel. It's not God has made a way for you to be really good if you try real hard. Jesus is said to be the righteous who died for the unrighteous. 
So this is the picture. This is the hope that we have. And he says to arm your mind with that. That word arm is hoplite. Well, in, in Greek, it's hopalon, but it's what we get the word hoplite from. Do anybody know what a hoplite is? If you've ever seen a Greek warrior, they got the big shield, the long spear, and then that metal helmet with like a T in it, that's a hoplite. And the way the hoplites operated would be they would put their shield forward and they would have their spear sticking through and they would line up and link together. And then right behind them would be another row of hoplites with their, their shield pushing into their back, not to push them forward, but to steady them in battle. And so they would have two or three layers like this. There were some stories of 50 layers deep. And this hoplite move, uh, barricade could move through the opposition. What would happen is they'd be fighting and they'd be stabbing with their spear and the commander would say, move forward. And they would take half a step forward or two steps forward or something and they could push through the line. At the time, this was impenetrable. And so hop on means arm yourself. But the picture of it is this hoplite um, uh, infantry or uh, uh, yeah, infantry that was just at the time unassailable. You couldn't beat them. They weren't very fast. They weren't very mobile. But when they were set, they were set. And so Peter is picturing, picking up that same kind of picture and saying, fix this in your mind as that kind of immovable barrier, this barricade that can't be penetrated, that will push back against whatever is coming your way. Fix that in your mind. What he's telling us is believe the gospel. And not just believe it as in, I believe that George Washington was the president, but fix it in your mind. It is so significant since Christ, therefore, has suffered in, your in the flesh, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. Remind yourself it's not about me. It's not about how strong or how good I am. I'm arming myself with the truth that Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What's my role in that? To get washed. So this is, this is what he's reminding us. How can we have hope in the dispersion? Fix your mind on this. Fix your mind on this way of thinking. Make that the, the standard, the, the central portion of your thoughts. And then he goes on and he says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You can't take this as an absolute. And I say that because in context, it's not an absolute. He just said, who did he just say suffered in the flesh? Jesus suffered in the flesh. Did Jesus cease from sin? No, Jesus was sinless. Remember, he said he is the righteous, singular, who died for the unrighteous, plural. So Jesus did not cease to sin or cease from sin when he suffered in the flesh. And, and just the converse of that, we know people who have suffered who have not ceased from sin. So um, I don't want to come up and say this. What it says is not what it means. <laughs> What it says is exactly what it means. We just got to set the context and the borders for it. What he's saying, I think, if we take it in context is, what did he talk about suffering for us? For us, he said, if you suffer unjustly, this is a gracious thing in God's sight. He's told us that three times it's coming up again. He's going to say it one more time. So if he means, if you suffer in the flesh for doing what right, what's right, then you're not sinning because you're doing what's right. Although the pressure, because of the suffering, because of the opposition will be intense, you have ceased from sin because you're suffering for, what's doing, for doing what's right in God's eyes. So he means what he says, but you just can't absolutize it and say, well, I guess 
if I just suffer enough, I can cease sinning. I'll, I'll stop. So whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Jesus has washed us. That's the mindset. This is the goal. And so why do we do that? So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So this is that picture that we're halfway to salvation. We're almost there. God has come. He's given us a new heart. He's given us a new mind. He's inscribed his law on our hearts. He's removed the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He's inclined us internally towards obedience. But we're still encased in a body that hasn't changed. We're not fully redeemed yet. We won't be until the resurrection when our body is made new and then it's set free from sin. And so the reality now is we have this struggle. Why do you have to arm yourself, arm your thinking this way? Because your flesh is still heading in a different direction. It's still tempted in that direction. We don't want to. Our mind and our spirit is new, but our body is not. So if we suffer in the flesh and we cease from sin, if we set our mind on the important things and we want to align ourselves with God, then the goal of it is to no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh as long as you're alive for human passions. Now, does that mean the rest of the time you're alive, not living for human passions will be dour and boring and just unfun and horrible? That's not what he's getting at. What he's trying to show us here, and we'll see this in the next section, what we should not do is he's going to make it for us. To, he's going to help us to see the, this, this living for the human passions will not ultimately satisfy. It won't take you to a place where you're actually experiencing joy. You're, you're not living as you're supposed to be. You're not being the person that God has made you to be. And so that's where he wants us to go. He wants us to stop living for human passion and start living for God. Why? Who designed you? Who built you? Who, who laid out the plan, your DNA? God did. Why did he do that? Why did he make you? Why did he make you who you are? Why did he make anything? For his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. Everything is built for his glory. So ultimately, human beings will not be happy. We won't be satisfied. We will be David Dunn moping around until we find the purpose for which God created us. So when he says stop living for human passions and live instead according to the will of God, the promise is you will actually find more joy living that way. Even if you're suffering, even if you're being persecuted and opposed and made fun of and ridiculed for living that way, you will ultimately find more joy. So when he says that those who have, have died in the flesh have ceased to sin, um, some people take that to mean you can stop sinning. You can get to a point in your Christian life where you don't sin anymore. It's called the doctrine of perfectionism. And the danger of the doctrine of perfectionism is, first of all, you could succeed. You could convince yourself, I have ceased to sin. How compassionate will you be to those who have not ceased to sin? especially in the sin that so plagued you before, you will have no compassion for them. I, could, I did it, why can't you? It's not that hard. Or you'll realize you can't, you'll fail. You'll realize you can't cease from sin and you'll become despondent. So this idea of perfectionism is a bad idea and also it's just not biblical. 
John talks about this quite a bit in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, right at the very beginning, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. See, you can stop sinning. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the goal, the idea is don't sin. Not never sin. And if you do sin, then you have, you have a, a, an advocate. First uh, John chapter 5, right around the middle, he says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, sin not leading to death, he's still your brother, and he's committing a sin. So it's, it's not excluding that. And again, it's because Jesus the righteous died for us the unrighteous. So let's, let's avoid the perfectionism and instead fix our hope, fix our mind on what Jesus has done for us so that for the rest of time in the flesh, we would live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's where you'll find who you're supposed to be. That's where you'll find your ultimate joy. So he, Peter goes on and explains, what does that look like, human passions? Verse 3, for the time for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You had time before you became a believer. You, you did these things before you became a believer in Jesus Christ. It, that's enough. That, that's, that's finished. That's over with. Um, the NIV translates it, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. This is the picture of there's the Jew, the Gentile, and the church. And so we're, we're not doing those things. We're not living in that way. What was your big sin before you became a believer? Mine, I was a liar. I was pretty well convinced I was a good liar. I'm pretty sure my friends were pretty convinced I was a bad liar. Because if you lie, you have to remember it all. What did I tell to who? Why did I lie? What was I going for? I wanted to be cool. I wanted to do the things that I hadn't done. And so I would just lie about them. One of the great ones in, uh, in, in school, like uh, junior high school, high school, is your girlfriend or boyfriend in another city that nobody has ever seen. Like, that person doesn't exist. You're lying. And by the way, your friends know because they probably told that lie too. Time has passed for that. I don't, I don't need that anymore. I don't need to keep doing that kind of thing. Because now I have a life in Christ. So do you see why you have to fix, why you have to arm your mind for this? Your mind is still thinking, you know, just a little lie here and there and it'll be all right. Because it worked before. Well, it didn't work before, but you didn't know that. And so he's saying the time has passed. That was enough. Put that away. Don't do that anymore. And now he starts listening, listing, listening, listing what those kind of things look like. And in English, they sound pretty benign. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. But when you get behind it a little bit, it's, it's not great. <laughs> um, sensuality. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible translates it as unrestricted behavior. So it's not just a sexual sin. It is whatever feels good, whatever satisfies, whatever I want. I'm just going to pour it in. I'm going to pour it in. Not just living occasionally slipping into that, but living in it. Always seeking to indulge the desire of the flesh, the, the twisted part of you. Um, it, it's, a, it's a lack of moral restraint. Now, that does not mean that the Gentiles are as wicked and evil as they possibly can be at every moment. Always. 
Um, first of all, it's not self-serving because if I kill the people that I you know, want stuff from, then I can't get stuff from them again. So just on a practical level, it doesn't work. But also it's God's common grace, right? He created human beings in his own image. And when he created us in his image, it's not just that we are thoughtful and creative. We also have this moral center, twisted and distorted as it is. So this is uh, where I get that is from uh, Romans chapter 2. Where when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, by nature, by their very nature, do what the law requires, occasionally will stumble into it. They are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. Why is that? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So God has, has part of the image of God in us is a moral code. We violate it quite easily before we come to Christ, but that's what he's talking about with sensuality, is, is following those, those desires, those whatever feels good, do it kind of thing. So it's sensuality, passions. Well, Peter's already mentioned passions a couple of times. Uh, at the very beginning right here, he said, um, in, don't live according to human passions. In chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, in, in Greek thought, the passions would be the animal urges, the animal desires, the lower thing. The humans are supposed to achieve above that. We're supposed to do better than that. So it's the primal, it's the, the gut instinct kind of stuff, and we're supposed to think better than that. That's what he means by passions. The danger here may sound remote. Ah, I would never live like that. But it's real because he's mentioned it three times in this epistle. There, there's a danger we're supposed to be warned away from to not live with those passions. Why? Because the passions are still there. They're still part of us. But we're not supposed to indulge them. We're supposed to be fixing our mind on something better. Drunkenness. This is not just wine. This is an overflow of wine. This is an abundance of wine. This is really digging in. And to, to just make the point how real this threat is, according to a report from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, we have a national institute on alcohol and alcoholism because it's a real problem. Last September, they, their report said that alcohol sales during COVID were up. Beer and wine kind of bounced around the average, but um, hard liquor, spirits, went way up, 20 or 30 to 35% above normal purchasing at times. Why? Well, there's probably a number of reasons for that, but one of them is because drunkenness is a cure for loneliness. It's, it's a solution for boredom. Uh, when I was in the Air Force, I used to jokingly, it's not very funny, and it's, it's actually kind of mean, say, oh, I'm a weekend alcoholic. Because when I get off work, we'd party all weekend. And then we'd try to sober up by Monday and go back to work. Um, why would you be a weekend alcoholic? Because you're bored. Because you don't have any central thing in your life to fill, and so you pour alcohol into it to make you feel better. And, and the same thing could be the sensuality. I, I don't really have much going on in my life, so I'm going to go after these animal desires or, or passions or any of that. When I was in Korea, um, one of our chaplains went with town patrol. Town patrol was the security police from the base would go out to the town on like Friday and Saturday nights and patrol the bars, civilian bars. They would go patrol them because 
the airmen were known for getting in trouble. And so this chaplain went with the police one night on town patrol. And his report, he told us, was, I have never seen so many miserable people having so much fun. They were bored silly. They were away from home, away from everything they knew. So they went downtown and drank as much alcohol as they possibly could to numb the pain, to numb the loneliness. It was really tragic. And I could tell you some gross stories about the results of that, but I'll skip it. It's, it's not pretty. The next word that he mentions is orgies. Um, the, the word, what it means in the Greek is um, celebrating to excess. There was Bacchlarian um, orgies. Um, Bacchus was the, the Greek god of wine. And so these orgies would be pouring as much wine, eating as much food, indulging as much as you possibly could, just having a blast and, and living it up. And so that's what the orgy is talking about. It's not so much to celebrate and have fun as it is to, um, to find some way to fill a void that can't be filled, an emptiness that you, you haven't quite got. Uh, drinking parties. That's the next thing he says. Really, it's putting the previous two together. He's partying to get drunk for no other reason. And then the last one is lawless idolatry. Well, according to God's law, all idolatry is lawless. So that's probably not the idea that it's, it's idolatry that's not authorized under the law. No idolatry is authorized under the law. What's he talking about? Well, here's a good question. Why warn Christians against idolatry? Why would he do that? Because, my brothers and sisters, we're prone to it. It's, it's not just this that mentions it. Um, 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. Paul or John wrote that because that's a real concern. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is kind of looking back to the Exodus and saying, this was, this was for us. And listen, listen to how he explains it. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They sat down to eat and drink. What did we just talk about? Eating and drinking. And they rose up to play. They were idolaters. In doing that, they built a golden calf and said, this is the gods who led us out of Egypt. And he keeps going. He says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. God's warning us through the example of Exodus to flee idolatry. And that's what he says at the end of that, this section. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So where's the threat for us? Have you ever walked past and seen a gold idol sitting in a... In a box someplace and thought, oh, I should bow down and worship that. It wasn't the worshiping the gold that was so important. It was the sitting down to eat and drink, rising up to play. It was the, the worship of the idol that they found so enticing. There was great food. In, in the Roman world, the best meat market was at the temple. So that's where you'd go to get the best meat because that was what was sacrificed. For us, I think the the temptation to idolatry is basically the same. It's just we've become more sophisticated in what's in the temple. It's not so much that there's a golden idol that looks really appealing. It's the feeling, the inclusion, the connection, the sense of, of community, the something that, that we're missing, trying to fill that hole of God. And so we can still, we still need to be reminded, flee from idolatry. That's why Peter tells us. That's why John told us. That's why um, uh, Paul told us. So the time to live that way with those kind of desires and those kind of impetuses in your life, that's past. You have come to Christ. 
You have been redeemed. Those things, it's, it's now time to put that away. And he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Why would they do that? Because they can't imagine a world where there's something so satisfying that they don't need to get drunk or party or play games or something to fill my time. I'm just, I, I don't know what to do with the hours every day. It's, it's maddening. They can't imagine a life like that. So why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you join us in this? And that's where the Christians look really weird. They say, because we've got something that satisfies us. This is how we have hope in the dispersion. This is how we have hope in a world that is not yet our own. How we can look like strangers and aliens here. And the response is not a guaranteed, boy, I like those people. Those, those folks are great. So we're called, encouraged, and instructed to have hope in the dispersion. We're told how to have hope in the dispersion. Arm your mind with the gospel. That's how you have hope in the dispersion. Hope in the dispersion isn't achieved by blending into the dispersion, by joining them in the parties and all of those kind of things. That won't bring you hope. You will be David Dunn, unsatisfied, not happy, feeling out of step all the time because I'm trying to fill a hole that this thing can't fill. That's if you try to blend into the dispersion. And you'll lose hope. There's no hope in that. Nor is hope in the dispersion achieved by isolating yourself, withdrawing from all of that, by, by setting up a barricade and, and fencing yourself off and saying, I have nothing to do with it. You're no longer in the dispersion. That, that's a, not what Peter is telling us to do. To achieve it, what we have to do is live according to this. And what will the result be? Remember what he said in 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable in accordance with God's standards, so that when they speak evil against you, or so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they malign you for not joining them, your good deeds, they may see your, your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. There's something going to be compelling about what you're doing to them, and they may glorify God on that, that day of visitation. The Christian life is to be lived in the midst of this world, as difficult as that is as challenging as that will be, with our mind fixed on something that we know for sure is coming, the hope that we have that can't be shaken, and yet not compromising to the way the world is. Because this is the way it is now is not how God designed it to be. And he will restore it to what it was supposed to be. It, that, that's coming, and that's where he's going to go next. So even when they hate you for it, Live for God in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Why? What's the reason for that? They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, it sounds judgy and, and preachy and that kind of stuff to say that, but it's reality. They will give an account to him who is judged to judge the living and the dead. There is a day of reckoning coming. There's a day coming when the evil that's spoken against you, when, when the maligning that has been thrown your way, when persecution and trial and, and martyrdom, if it comes to that, that will be put in a scale and weighed. There is a day coming when they will have to give an account, why did you do this? You know in your heart what they were doing is right. Why did you do that? 
and they'll have to give an account. But Paul doesn't leave it in a negative, or Peter doesn't leave it in a negative sense. Listen to what he goes on to in verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached to even those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So immediately he warns us, there is a judgment coming, you will give an account, but the gospel was preached. And so he says the gospel was preached to even, those to, even to those who were dead. So maybe these Christians are wondering, what about my brother and sister who died before this? They had the gospel preached to them. And so the end of their life is not the end of their life. They're going to go on and live in the spirit the way God does. So judgment comes. Everybody's going to be judged. I have terrible news for you. Everybody in this room is going to die. I don't know when. I'm not going to kill you. I mean, it's not like everything's going to... The wind is beginning to make me worry a little bit. Maybe the building will fall down. But so far, so good. We're all going to die. And what the Bible tells us is man is appointed once to die and then comes judgment. We will face the judge. It, it's, it's a surety. What Peter reminds us, though, is the gospel was preached to you. Go back to the beginning. Arm your mind with this. Arm your mind with what? With the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the hope. That's, that's what we're looking forward to. The, the gospel was preached even to people who have already been dead. They, they, they had the gospel be preached before them. You're going to die whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. But the promise is in this dispersion, in this, this world that's arrayed against us, we might live in the spirit the way God does. We'll continue on. We'll participate with that. So remember, this is kind of like what Peter said last week about this is, uh, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, right? What he said last week was Jesus in the spirit went and proclaimed to those in prison. That doesn't mean that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead so they have a second chance. The context won't support that. They will be judged. So that's not what that means. He's talking about those of us who have heard the gospel and who've died. He's comforting us. He's reminding us, even if your brother or sister in Christ has been executed, even if they died, there's hope because they get to live on. They get to press on after that. They get to live for God. So this is why we're called to live in this way, that, that we're making this distinction. We're, we're called to live now in the flesh, in an unredeemed body, in, in, in flesh and blood that still is, remembers the ways before we were saved, and yet a spirit that's drawing us, that's calling us, that's pleading with us to live the way God does. And when we do, we don't expect the world to applaud. Oh, look at that. What we expect them to do is hate it because they know deep in their soul that's right and I'm wrong and I don't want anybody to tell me I'm wrong. That's the scary part. And so what Peter is reminding us again is you will face persecution because of this. You will face opposition. But he wants us to remain hopeful because in the judgment, in the final analysis, in the end of it all, we have hope in it. We were talking about that in Sunday school. If you died today and went to heaven and God met you at the gate and said, why should I let you in heaven? Steve Carlson had a great adjustment to my normal way of saying that. What do people do when they meet God in the Bible? 
fall down on their face, either as dead or I am a man of unclean lips. So God meets you at the gate. Why should I let you into heaven? I am a man of unclean lips and I live in a people of unclean lips. But Jesus then goes, Father, he's with me. And that's the hope that we have. That's how we can try to live today, not in perfection, not in the condemning idea of perfection, but we can arm our mind and maintain that battle and struggle to live in a way that the Gentiles might glorify God in this day of visitation. And that's the hope that we have. That's, that's the only hope that we have. So again, to paraphrase what Elijah said from Unbreakable, that sadness in the mornings you know of, I know what that is. Perhaps you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing. Perhaps you're looking for comfort in things that cannot comfort. Arm your mind, fight the battle, live the way God wants us to. That's the admonition. That's the call. Let's pray. Lord, um, for myself, I know I don't do this perfectly. I don't respond in the way I should every single time. And so, Lord, I'm going to just confess that those times when I do, they're not natural. Lord, that's the work of your spirit, inclining my heart toward obedience, reminding me of the hope that I have in Christ, and leading me to live in the spirit as you do. And Lord, I'm sure I'm not a freak. I'm sure all my brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced that in one, one way or another. And we've all run into those times when we were not living as we should and we know it. But Lord, would you help us to remember what Paul or what Peter has told us here? That we would arm our thoughts, that we would make our mind think in a way that is not so focused on me, but Lord is bent outward looking toward Jesus Christ. And Lord, in that, that looking to Jesus, that hoping in Jesus, would you then enable and empower us to walk as we should? Not in drunkenness and orgies and sensuality and passions, but Lord, in true, real, abiding love, loving you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.